Good morning. We are in the middle of a series called Great Expectations. Throughout this series, we've said that God's Word, working with God's Spirit in God's people, can change the world. That's what we see taking place throughout the book of Acts. Incredible things happening to advance the kingdom of God and spread the gospel of Jesus places that it had never been before. Speaking of incredible things, next month Amanda and I will be married for 12 years. Now that might not sound like a big deal to you, but it's absolutely incredible to me. Time absolutely flies. Now do you ever think about what it would be like to go back in time and have a conversation with your younger self? I can tell you that Frank and Amanda from 2009 had a lot of expectations about life and marriage and family, and a surprising number of their expectations did not play out the way they expected. If you asked 2009 Frank or 2009 Amanda what starting a family was going to look like, they'd probably tell you, oh, we'll enjoy being young for a year or two, and then we're going to have all the babies that we can. Well, things didn't play out the way they expected. In fact, we tried and we tried and we tried to have a baby, and it never seemed to happen. After about six years, we began taking classes on fostering kids with the hopes that it would lead to adoption. As we sat through these classes and learned more and more about that system, the less and less at peace we were with fostering. As things steered back toward adoption, one of Amanda's co-workers introduced us to Kathleen. Her parents had kicked her out of her house. She was living with a friend, and she needed people in her life to just love on her. So in the spring of 2016, we invited her to come live with us, and three years later, we adopted her into our family. While we were raising Kathleen and navigating the waters of parenting a teenager, God in his perfect timing blessed us with a baby. Amanda, Kathleen, and I were content and comfortable with things as they were when out of nowhere we found out that we were going to have a baby and he was expected to arrive in mid-February 2018. Well again, stories don't always unfold the way that you expect them to. Judah was supposed to be born in mid-February, so when we went to the hospital the first week of January, we did not expect that we would be holding a baby the next day. We didn't pack bags, we didn't have a nursery ready, nothing. Oh, and we expected that Amanda would nurse him, we wouldn't do formula and all those kinds of things, and, and parenthood would just be, you know, picturesque, when in reality, almost none of those things played out the way that we expected. Because Judah was born so early, I had to drive him to the hospital every day for the first two or three weeks that we had him in our home so that he could have blood drawn. We had to do formula because Amanda's body wasn't ready to produce milk yet. Almost nothing went according to our plan. Later that year, in the summer of 2018, the elders at Lincoln Hills announced that I would be taking over for Webby beginning in 2020. For over a year and a half, we planned and we discussed, we strategized, we read books on transitions, and we met with other preachers to discuss the challenges that lay ahead of us. Well, in all that planning and in all those discussions and all that strategizing, the possibility of a global pandemic never came up, not once. In my wildest dreams, I never expected that two and a half months into this huge change in my life and in the life of our church family, that the whole world would just shut down. But I got to tell you, and this might surprise you, 
I wouldn't change a thing. Throughout all the crazy, unpredictable things that have happened in our family and in ministry here, I can see God's hand in so many ways. Oftentimes, God reveals how short-sighted our expectations can be. This is partially because it's way easier to see how God has worked in your past than it is to trust that he's working in your present. That doesn't change the fact that he is at work. It's just easier to see in retrospect. Life doesn't always unfold the way that we might expect, but God, in his word, he promises that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The aim of this series has been to draw our attention to the great things we can expect as we follow Jesus and magnify his name to the world around us. Last week, Chris talked about the great wonders performed by the followers of Jesus, specifically by a guy named Stephen. What we saw was yet another instance where a very familiar pattern was placed before us. Stephen performed great wonders, and then opposition began to bubble up against him and the followers of Jesus. This is exactly what we saw back in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John healed the crippled man, and opposition began to rear its head. Only this time, it cost Stephen his life. Acts 8 begins like this, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And until this point, the church had been centralized in Jerusalem. After all, this was the most important city in the Jewish faith. By all accounts, the good news had thoroughly saturated Jerusalem, and the first followers of Jesus were content to focus their attention there. The problem was, this was not what Jesus had instructed the disciples to do. He didn't say, go into all Jerusalem and make disciples. Before he ascended into heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we see in the first few verses of Acts chapter 8 is the fulfillment of what was commanded in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And right off the bat, you can't miss the fact that it, it, it took a great persecution to propel the gospel forward. In his commentary on the New Testament, Warren Wearsby writes, persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it and only produces a greater harvest. The believers in Jerusalem were God's seed, and the persecution was used of God to plant them in new soil so they could bear fruit. We don't tend to think about persecution as being a valuable thing. We tend to think that when we face opposition and adversity or when things get really uncomfortable, for us that something must be wrong. We say things like, why would God let this happen? Or doesn't God know or care? Some of the followers of Jesus have even embraced the mistaken idea that God won't allow bad things to happen to his people. But this is exactly the opposite of what we see 
from Jesus. He says this in John chapter 15, verse 20. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In verse 3, Luke says, Saul began to destroy the church. And we are again living at a time when the church of Jesus is being threatened with destruction. I'm not talking about destruction of buildings or the confiscation of property. I'm talking about us. We are the church. You and I are the ecclesia or the, the called out ones. But far too many believers never consider what it means to be called out. In fact, the majority of self-identifying Christians have climbed in and slipped underneath the sheets of cozy Christianity, closed their eyes, and began to dream about other things. In the book Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream, David Platt writes, We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. A few weeks back, one of the speakers at the ladies' lock-in described our culture by saying that Western, the Western church has been lulled to sleep by a satanic lullaby. I think that's pretty spot on, and I don't want to be overly dramatic, but the truth is if we don't wake up and snap out of it, we could be in serious trouble. Remember, God often uses great persecution to spark people's fire and snap them out of their cozy, comfortable, complacent routines. Jesus resurrected from the dead, commissioned the disciples, and for over three years, the gospel more or less stayed in Jerusalem. Jesus did tell his followers to wait in Jerusalem to be clothed with power uh, from the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit had come upon them in Acts chapter 2. You can't miss this. The advancement of the gospel was far too important to get stalled in Jerusalem, so God allowed a great persecution to scatter his people and subsequently spread the good news. Verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. You may know this, and you may not, but Jews and Samaritans didn't care for one another. In fact, the Jews really looked down on the people of Samaria, and the Samaritans fell about the same way towards the Jews. The Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds and often called them dogs. But this isn't how Jesus viewed or treated the Samaritans. In fact, there was once a time when Jesus traveled through the Samaritan village of Sychar, and there he met a woman at a well during the hottest part of the day. She was there at, a, at this time because she was an outcast. Now get this in your mind. She was an outcast of outcasts. But that didn't stop Jesus from approaching her and revealing his majesty to her. He had such an impact on her that John said she left her water jar, which is kind of a big deal, and ran back to town saying this, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then 10 verses later, John concludes, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, 
many more became believers. Jesus loved outcasts. He loved people who were nothing like him, and people who were nothing like him loved Jesus. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus' followers, like Philip, would go to places like Samaria on behalf of Jesus and the gospel. The question is, what happens where disciples are scattered? What is the fruit of this great persecution in Acts chapter 8? What should we expect to see from dispersed disciples proclaiming the words of Jesus, practicing the works of Jesus, and imitating the ways of Jesus? We find transformed lives and great joy. Verse 8 says, So there was great joy in that city. Why is that? Well, it turns out that the, those people are hungry for more than this world has to offer them. When disciples are willing to meet people right where they are and lovingly proclaim the words of Jesus, faithfully practice the works of Jesus, and humbly imitate the ways of Jesus, people tend to pay attention. Now let's turn the spotlight back onto the 21st century for a minute. Are we living as faithful witnesses for Jesus within our circles of influence? Has the gospel made us comfortable or committed? Has the knowledge that we have been saved made us restful or resolute, soft or steadfast? I love this quote. Disciple-making is not a call for others to come to us to hear the gospel, but a command for us to go to others to share the gospel. Before Jesus sent the church into the world, he sent the Spirit into the church. But those Spirit-filled followers of Jesus got comfortable where they were. So God allowed a great persecution to spread the good news. If we are truly following Jesus and we're not seeing the sprouts of great joy from those around us, we've got some tough questions to wrestle with, right? Am I proclaiming the words of Jesus, practicing the works of Jesus, and imitating the ways of Jesus? Or have I gotten comfortable coasting with the culture? Sometimes guys like me do you a disservice when we challenge you to accept Jesus as your Savior like we challenge you to accept a Taco Bell gift card. Because the fact is, Jesus doesn't need your acceptance or mine. He deserves our surrender. The saving grace of Jesus is a beautiful gift, and it is worth accepting. But make no mistake, while we are steeped in our sin, we are his enemies. And surrendering to the King of Kings is the way to be saved from his wrath. When a disciple isn't sharing the gospel and making new disciples, that likely stems back to an incorrect view of who Jesus is and why we are here. As we see in the book of Acts, God will use a great persecution to get our attention. If I'm being honest, I'd prefer to avoid this. I'd prefer that out of the overflowing love and gratitude that we have for Jesus, we'd all just take seriously how important it is to proclaim the words of Jesus, practice the works of Jesus, and imitate the ways of Jesus. I'd prefer that, that we wouldn't settle for people coming to us to hear about Jesus, but that we would go with intentionality and meet them right where they are. In a rather unexpected way, great persecution led to great joy. That's not what Saul had planned, that's for sure. But oftentimes, that's exactly what God does. He takes our expectations 
and he reveals how short-sighted and hollow they can be. What's really unexpected is that in the chapters to come, Saul, the great persecutor of the church, is going to become the greatest promoter of the church. Who expected that? Throughout this series, we've said that God's Word, working with God's Spirit, in God's people, can change the world. And that's what we'll see in Saul. After he surrenders to Jesus, everything begins to change. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I invite you to do that today. To repent of your sins, to be immersed into Christ and have those sins washed away so that you can start proclaiming the words of Jesus, practicing the works of Jesus, and imitating the ways of Jesus in your life. If you're ready to take that next step and you're ready to be baptized, or you just need someone to pray with you about things that are going on in your life, please reach out to us via private message here on Facebook uh, or through our website, info at lincolnhillschristian.com. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to sing one last song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for pursuing us in Jesus. Help us not to be comfortable where we are, but help us to see the gravity of the situation we're in and how lost the world around us is. Break our hearts for the things that break yours and then motivate us to live like Jesus in the world around us so that others might come to know you the way that we have. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.